Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Before we begin today, I want to remind you that there is a website associated with this show. It is wealthformula.com. That's where you go to sign up for various resources, various lists, including our investor club. Now, if you are an accredited investor and are interested in potentially capitalizing on the upcoming blood in the streets and you have not yet signed up, uh, go to wealthformula.com and sign up for investor club and get onboarded. Now, of course, you do need to be what's called an accredited investor. An accredited investor is someone who makes $200,000 a year uh, for at least two years consecutively, $300,000 per year if you are filing jointly or you have a net worth of $1 million outside of your personal residence. Anyway, if you're interested, go ahead and sign up for Investor Club at WealthFormula.com. Now, today I want to talk a little bit about something, well, it's sort of the theme of the whole show, right, is financial literacy. And, you know, a lot of times people ask this question, why is financial education not part of our school system? Well, to understand that, you have to understand where our school system came from in the first place. Our educational system started during the Industrial Revolution and was influenced heavily by something called the Prussian system, which I'm not going to get into a great deal. But what do you think of when you hear industrial revolution? Those words to me, when I think about them, I think of factories and conveyor belts. You know, this was a time, the industrial revolution of massive productive gains in the United States and ultimately a fundamental change in the way we live. So not only did businesses need to produce more products with factories, but they also needed factories to create people, people to work in those factories. So schools became factories for people, right? That's exactly what they were intended to do at that point. Students were treated like products on an assembly line. They're basically learning all the same thing at the same pace, much like widgets rolling off a conveyor belt. Now, the rich business owners were ultimately, of course, the beneficiary of this system. They got a workforce ready to fit their industries, and these workers were less likely to question or challenge the system because that's not what they were trained to do. Despite the fact that we've moved beyond this you know, industrial revolution and now we're into this even newer information age, the old education system actually remains. I mean, obviously, you see some changes 
the Khan Academies and online stuff, but really it's largely the same with those conveyor belts one through 12. And, you know, lots of standardized tests, rote learning, teachers seen more as authority and guides. So that's basically where we're at. Now ask yourself now why financial education isn't part of our school system. And now, of course, it becomes pretty clear, doesn't it? Why would a system designed to create a workforce teach them about money? After all, we all know that financial independence doesn't exactly incentivize someone to continue working. Anyway, my guest this week on Wealth Formula Podcast is a young woman trying to change the system. It's clearly not Bill Battle, but we'll hear how she's planning to do it right after these messages. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Yanelli Espinel. She is a Brooklyn-born ball of energy with an intimate knowledge of financial education, culture, and politics in America. She's known on the internet as Miss B. Helpful. Uh, and she's a millennial financial educator who started her career as a teacher and now serves as the director of educational outreach at NextGen Personal Finance. She's currently on a political roller coaster ride across the country, trying to convince lawmakers to make personal finance a high school graduation requirement. Yanelli, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. So excited to join you. I love that intro. I definitely am on a political roller coaster ride. That yeah. Is, that is a fact. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> well, good. Well, so. You, you know, you're on a mission, right? You're yes. on a mission uh, and your mission is to promote financial education in school. So where, so where does this all come from? What's inspiring this? Yeah, no, it's a great question. It, it comes from like, honestly, making a lot of mistakes myself. You know, I'm first generation daughter of immigrants. I came to New York City from Dominican Republic, no English, no money, no sure. network, you know, no education. They didn't right. actually go beyond the third grade in school. And so with 
the the life that you know they kind of have lived like they didn't really have those lessons to kind of pass down to their children and so a lot of that was me learning through the school of hard knocks and Mm -hmm. making a lot of mistakes with credit cards when I was in college and shortly after college and so once I kind of realized like okay I'm teaching and I'm, I'm in a system that hasn't changed in decades you know from when I was in these seats to now being in the front of the classroom nothing is different and that kind of scared me and I realized like even though I thrived academically and I did everything I was quote unquote supposed to do you know I still made a bunch of mistakes and specifically in my financial life because I didn't have a lot of guidance or education so I kind of knew that I wanted to make it a personal passion of mine but also kind of pivot my career to do financial education work Um, and I didn't really know how to do that so I'm just glad I found out there were tons of organizations out there actually trying to get this done and not just offering resources to schools but actually trying to figure out the legislative front like how do we actually get the laws to require this class to be a mandatory part of high school graduation requirements. So tell me a little bit about the mission and and what you're trying to promote exactly. I know you're, you're, you know, it's financial education, but maybe a little bit more specific on what you have in mind. Yeah. So it can vary a little bit. So, um, when people say like financial education in schools, that could be very general. And it, it is just a general statement to say we want to we should teach financial literacy in schools. Uh, I When I started my career as a teacher, I started to really learn the ins and outs of like how teaching and actually, you know, public school education works. So there's layers to kind of how things get done. And the very first layer is this standards. There are a list of standards. Right. And it'll say like, you know, compare and contrasting interest rates on loans. Like that's a standard. You have to make sure that you teach that at some point in some way. But it doesn't say when you teach it, how long you teach it, how you teach it, what curriculum you use to teach it. It just, it just sort of names this big general thing, like this topic that has to get taught. You're talking about the bills. You're, you're talking about the bills that you're trying to get through, right? Well, just generally right now, first kind of like the the infrastructure, like the framework of how education works, because the thing and the reason why I start here is because when you introduce a bill, you have to be really specific in that bill language about what exactly you're creating, because what happens is a lot of folks will say, oh, there's already financial literacy in the standards. There's already financial literacy standards. Yeah. Okay, but. As we know, like when you're a teacher, you you know that like a standard doesn't really mean anything if it's just a floating standard. It's got to be actually taught within a course, a class. So the classes that are actually taught, those have lessons and objectives that align to the standards. So it's like if it's like compare and contrast interest rates on loans, then the actual objective for a lesson would be like today we're going to compare and contrast, you know, student loan interest rates or car loan interest rates or home mortgage rate, you know, loans. And so in that specific lesson, the students are doing something that's very specific that is aligning to a standard that has to be addressed. But if it if there's no lesson and there's no class that's going to have those standards in that class being taught during that time that the students take the course, then the standards are sort of useless. They're just floating out there and they're not actually being taught. So when we when we think about the financial education work being done now, there actually are a lot of states around the country that already have financial literacy standards in place at the state level. So their state has, you know, a list of standards that need to be taught. But there's no class, there's no course where those standards are actually being taught. So it's just this like wish list. It's like, oh yeah, here's this list of all these standards that we want to be teaching. But if there's no actual course that every student goes through where the standards are going to be like taught through lessons and objectives, then chances are it's just not going to happen. So standards are not the same as requirements is is bottom line, right? Like, so you, there, there's almost sort of a suggestion that curriculum should include this kind of thing, but no specification and no sort of uh, lowest, um, you know, common denominator that you have to, 
that you have to have in order to graduate. That's the idea. Bingo. Bingo. It doesn't mean it's required. And so uh, we, uh, the organization where I work at now, NGPF, it uh, stands for Next Gen Personal Finance, which is this, this nonprofit organization that said, you know what, a lot of reasons why schools don't teach this stuff is because they don't have it in their budget. They don't have enough money to like get the curriculum and to be able to kind of put this together. So by creating free curriculum, offering it online for free, it kind of eliminates that barrier. So any school with any budget or lack of budget can still get this done. And through uh, kind of looking and researching all the different states and all the different legislative initiatives that have happened over the past few years, we've kind of compiled data to show like, this is the best practices. This is what works. And so there's like five things that need to be included in a bill in order for it to really be effective. Um, And the first thing is it's got to have a specific language around the time. So it's got to say 18 weeks minimum of instruction, which is like a semester long class has to be a semester dedicated to personal finance. So it can't just be like, oh, well, there's some standards that they get taught in like a a business class or like some marketing class that teaches like budgeting for two weeks. Like that can't be like, that doesn't count, right? It's gotta be like a full semester of dedicated personal finance standalone instruction. Um, The second thing is it's gotta be really clear when it's happening, because I think the tricky thing is for teachers. And I I mean, I used to be a teacher. So I remember being told one day to the next that like, this has got to be implemented. You need time. Like you need time to plan. You need time to kind of put out your, you know, lessons and activities and do your research and prepare your materials for your instruction. So we can't just, throw it on teachers and say, oh, starting this fall, you got to start doing this. So with a two or three year transition plan, teachers have plenty of time to prep and the school administrators have time to train teachers who themselves maybe don't feel like they're fully confident with personal finance topics yet. So it gives time for training. Um, Another piece is really just understanding how local control plays a role in this, because a lot of states they really value the local control, meaning that while the state can say like what has to be taught, schools get to decide how it gets taught. So what curriculum they're going to choose to address this, what specific courses they're going to offer, whether it's like a money management, whether it's a personal finance or whether it's, you know, financial literacy, like they, the schools kind of get to decide how it looks and feels within their school building, even though it might be, you know, coming from the state, the, the guidance the specifics are really left, um, you know, to be something that's made up the decisions that get to be made at that local level. You, um, uh, you'd mentioned, I think that there, um, offline here, that there was some data, uh, that, uh, that the financial education at this level actually works. You want to talk a little bit about that? Definitely. So I'll tell you that this is super important because, you know, when you start talking to lawmakers, they have so many people <laughs> coming to them, sure. you know, emailing them, calling them, tweeting at them, right? Like this issue really matters. This is my issue. This is what you have to champion. This is, this needs to change. This is what we want to see. And the most important thing for them is to decide what are they going to prioritize? They can't pass every single bill. They can't make everything a law. So they have limited, you know, time and priorities. And so they want to look at what's data backed, what is really, you know, data driven. So what we've done is compiled all of the evidence that shows that financial education actually improves behavioral outcomes because the number one criticism around financial literacy education is that while you can memorize all these you know facts and stats if it doesn't change your behavior what you're doing with your money and it's not actually you know action based then it's not going to work that could be effective and so what we've done is put together all of these resources different um 
you know, uh, studies and from cited from all different universities, from all kinds of different places to show, okay, this is the impact that it has on behavior. So the first thing is credit behaviors. When you look at like a 10 year longitudinal study, the specific one I'm referring to is from Utah, because that was the first state that actually required a personal finance semester class at the high school level. So what they did was they taught the course. 10 years later, they compared. Let's look at the students who had the course and the students that didn't have the course. And the number one biggest difference is credit behaviors. They had better credit scores when they borrowed money to pay for college. The students who had the class were much smarter about the way they borrowed money. They borrowed at lower interest rates and they maxed out their federal loans before even considering private lending or borrowing from private sources. So that kind of decision-making know-how, like if you aren't taught explicitly that there's a difference and that this is how to go about doing it, Chances are you you just you don't know and you don't end up figuring it out until you make a couple of mistakes. Um, a couple of other things, too, is just like the likelihood and the frequency of participating in payday lending, which, you know, is kind of one of the worst ways, probably the worst way to borrow money in this country. And a lot of states don't have any kind of um real strict regulations around payday lending. So you can see in certain states that people are borrowing with 600% interest on these payday loans. And so what you notice is when students learn about, you know, interest and how it accrues and the way that healthy borrowing looks, they're able to kind of steer clear of some of those payday lending practices, especially, you know, the predatory ones that kind of hypersaturate certain neighborhoods where there aren't really many banks available, right? Um, and and then also retirement savings. It's a big difference when you look at um, school-based research that shows that students who get their first job in high school, which a lot of students tend to work because they want to get a car and they want to you know go out. And so, so once they're 16, 17 years old, they actually know that they can open a custodial Roth IRA when they get their first paycheck, once they have earned income. So you actually see a big difference in the number of students that begin investing through custodial retirement accounts as opposed to the students who don't even know that that's an option to them and and uh, and they don't take advantage. You know, I'm I'm always curious about like uh, financial education is an interesting topic because like like anything else there is uh, a lot of different um belief systems in terms of uh, exactly what, you know, financial yeah. education should look like. And when I think about uh sort of institutionalized financial education. The only concern I have a little bit in terms of public education is who the special interests uh, potentially are in there, yes. you know, and, you know, I, we, in particular, we, uh, you know, this audience tends to be a alternative asset group and a little bit suspicious of wall street and all that. Um, I don't know if you've thought about this, uh, but I'm curious what your, you know, what your thoughts are on those issues. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you the truth. Um, I'm extremely suspicious in, in general whenever I hear financial education is being taught. I'm like, mm, by who? Yeah, right, <laughs> because, exactly. Because you're right, you're right. And um, I will say the the work that we're doing at the nonprofit is really just trying to promote unbiased financial education, which I think the number one thing, like if you are teaching financial literacy in a school setting, in a public school setting, one, public schools are supposed to be the great equalizer, which means we all come in, regardless of our backgrounds, we're all getting an equal footing in terms of a, a chance to be able to take opportunities that are available to all of us. So in order to teach in a way that kind of prepares all students to have equal access to these opportunities and to usage of tools available to us, we have to be 
doing it in an unbiased way, meaning we can't be promoting or dissuading students from certain things. We just have to be exposing. It just has to really be purely exposure. Hey, this is what's available. Here's what's out there. Now do the critical thinking work it takes to decide whether this makes sense for you, given your family situation, your situation, your goals, the very specific things around your you know, plan for your life and your financial situation. So, you know, the NGPR curriculum is actually extra, works really hard to, to maintain that kind of unbiased approach, but there's so much curriculum out there. So even when I do work in terms of like working with lawmakers to say, hey, we, here's why we want to make a case for financial education. Technically, I'm there representing NGPF and uh, Mission 2030 Fund, which is an affiliated organization that does a lot of advocacy um, to, you know, get actual legislation in place. And when I talk to them in that way, the first thing they want to know is, well, okay, well, who, who, you, you know, wh where are you coming from? What is, what, are you pushing a specific curriculum, and what is that? And so we say, yeah, we do. We have a curriculum, and it's free but it is completely unbiased. We're not pushing or just waiting. We have certain optional units. We have cryptocurrency basics in the curriculum. We're not promoting crypto. We're also not dissuading students from using crypto. We're actually just exposing them to what is it? How does it work? Why are certain people proponents of it? Why would other people be against it? Let's learn about it. And then you can make your own decision. So I think it, it's that's a key with all aspects of the personal finance um, topics being taught, like credit. There are certain curriculum that says teach students to avoid credit at all costs, teach students never to borrow money that, you know, that's not unbiased. So, and from our perspective as an organization, we, we try really hard, not only to create unbiased resources and curriculum, that's always free. So anybody can use it to teach it, but also to get teachers that understand that level of understanding to get teachers on the same page as us, that your job as an educator is not to convince students of your, per of your perspectives, of your views when it comes to your personal finances. It's to, to expose them and give them the tools to be able to make the decision about whether it makes sense for them or not. But, you know, we're not here to kind of tell them never open a credit card or don't ever take out loans for college. Like that, that, that is not education, right. right? That's evangelism. And our goal is really exposure. Right. Well, there's certainly certain things that you can teach that I think it would be really useful that don't necessarily, that are generally agnostic, uh, like, a, like accounting, for example, I think accounting right. is, you know, accounting 101, I think, you know, uh, most adults, even, even professionals and physicians and, you know, highly educated individuals do not have basic accounting skills Absolutely. and, uh, you know, and, and things like that are, are potentially really would be potentially really useful uh, for kids to kind of learn and, and look at the perspective of life through that lens. Um, one curious uh, thing, it, it, it's, it's funny, like, and again, these are, I mean, these are kind of maybe putting the, the cart for the horse, so to speak, because you're, you're just starting in the infancy, but have you thought about like, you know, who would teach these things to, because sometimes, um, you know, the best people to teach a class for people who are financially successful, right? That's and right. it's certainly yeah. also, um, it's certainly also probably more inspiring uh, to kids uh, than to hear it from, you know, their teacher who they know is broke. I mean, yeah. and I, and, and that's, that's a sad truth, by the way. I don't think. No, you know, you're, you're, are, you're absolutely right. And yeah. I say that because I used to be a teacher and right. I was broke. Right, right, <laughs> right. But, but seeing, but, but uh, have you given any thought to that? I mean, cause like part of, um, part of what I'm thinking is I bet you there's a lot of people out there who would yeah. love to go in and, and, 
you know, to, to teach, uh, and, you know, have be, be role models in that regard, uh, as, as volunteers, but is that something you guys have thought about at all? Yeah. So what I'll tell you is a lot of the research shows that volunteer based models don't tend to have the effectiveness um, yeah. of of other models sure. where there's actually a dedicated adult that has the consistency of being able to teach this with students. But I we definitely think about the, te- you know, who the teachers who are teaching this. So, because you know, I mentioned a little earlier, but because education is so highly localized in our country and in the United States specifically, it's not something where the federal government can say, OK, this is going to be under math or this is going to be under social studies or this is going to be under econ or every state sort of makes the decision about where it's tucked under, which department and who teaches it at at the state level. So it actually looks different in every state. And we've gone from eight states that have a full semester requirement to 19 states from in just the past three to four years, we've more than tripled. So when you think about, okay, how can you go from five to eight states to now having 19 states? It's showing the success stories from the states that have done this and saying, okay, look, this is what Utah did. This is what's happening in these states. Like this is what's working. And so like sharing that. And the number one thing that we use to kind of promote this and share with lawmakers how to make it effective is teacher professional development training. So regardless of which department or which teachers your state chooses to to use to get this done, those teachers need access to high quality professional development because the reality is if they grew up doing things a certain way, 100% guaranteed the students that they're teaching today are do not doing things that way because of mobile banking, because of online banking, because of tra- trading platforms, because of cryptocurrency, because of all kinds of things that today exist and are like the go-to option for this generation, which is like mobile first and internet natives versus the teachers who are teaching them that may not have had that experience growing up. So we try to really make sure that no matter what teachers are teaching, whether you're in the math, whether you're in the social studies, whatever licensure or certification that you have, that you have guaranteed access to high quality professional development training that's gonna help you be caught up on 21st relevant, 21st century relevant trends that your students are going to actually be able to relate to. So for example, we create current events videos every week, like Venmo versus cash app, you know, which one's better for consumer protections and which one kind of save is more safe for your cash to kind of be sitting in that account. Like why, what are the pros and cons of each? Because the reality is while most teachers aren't using cash app and Venmo, all of their students are. So it's really important that the teachers, whether they do it or not, that they learn how to teach it and present it to their students in a way that's engaging, relevant because chances are if they don't include it they're gonna it's gonna go right over their students head this course is just gonna be another you know class on the schedule that students are rolling their eyes when they see it rather than being like oh my goodness this is exactly what i need to be able to apply it right away with my money right right interesting so um you know we talked a little bit again offline about generally this conversation that we're having probably is more likely to perk the ears up of parents, not necessarily the, the, the students or millennials who, who are may not be listening to the show, but so what, what, what would you like? I mean, in an ideal world, what would you like parents to do to, to help the cause and how can they help the cause? Yeah. So, you know what? Um, so I took a couple of years and I just started actually like writing a book and thinking about what was the message that I wanted to leave in my book. And I think the biggest thing that I ended up deciding was at the very end of the book to make it a call to action that 
you use your voice as an advocate, right? Especially as a parent, you're constantly from the day your child is born, you're advocating for your child. And so how do you extend that further to advocating for what they need beyond them being 18? You know, cause once they turn 18, they can sign on the dotted line with or without your presence to take on loans, to take on debt, to do all kinds of things financially. So how do we prepare them to make the smartest choices from that point forth? We have to make sure that they're getting the education that equips them with the just basic knowledge, basic tools, basic, you know, understanding of what is available to them. And so, um, you know, for me, that means parents are tweeting at their local representatives and, and senators at the state level saying, you know, there's this bill that is happening that's kind of proposed in our state that talks about financial literacy being a required course. I would love to see this happen, you know, tagging the senators, tagging the the folks who you know that are sitting on the committee of education, both on the House side and, you know, both sides of the chamber and on the House of Representatives and the Senate side. So you have to make sure that you're kind of like doing a little bit of that digging to see who are the committee members on the House and on the Senate side who focus on education, because those are the folks that will have to vote yes to push this bill forward. So first job of a parent is find out, is there a bill right now? If not, is there something in the works? Are people talking about this? Let me send some data to say that as a parent of a kid who's either going to be in high school or who is in high school, this is an issue that I care about. And I would like to see this happening in our schools, because once there's a champion, like in terms of a lawmaker who's serious about getting this bill passed, then they're going to be able to kind of, you know, reach out to their constituency and see who, who wants to testify in support of this thing? If you're a parent, if you have kids, they can go and testify in support. That is the most powerful testimony that you can provide is to have a teenager come in and say, I need this class. I'm confused about what to do with my paycheck. I don't know how to invest in the stock market. TikTok, TikTokers are telling me to do this. And then another TikToker telling me not to do this. And I don't know who to trust or what's true or what's not. And so a class like this could be really, really influential. And I think it has to come from them, their parents, from the teachers, from the community, because at the end of the day, advocates and, and lawmakers are only really going to do what the constituents want to see getting done. And that means that parents and students have to advocate for it. They have to speak up and say, this is this matters and this is what we want to see in our schools. What um, tell us a little bit about more about the, your organization and how people can you know uh, get involved or look up some of the resources that are involved. Yeah. So the first thing I would say is just the bill tracker. So if you, if you Google NGPF bill tracker, um, NGPF, which stands for next gen personal finance, if you look up the bill tracker, you'll be able to see all the financial education bills that have been proposed in the current session or in most, you know, most recent or so previous session. And that is just a quick way to see what's going on in your state. Right now, so we're recording this in May of 2023, there's 93 bills that have been introduced in 32 states. 78 of these bills are still active in 29 states and six bills have been signed into law in five states. So there is a lot of momentum. This is a national movement, like there's stuff happening. And so you can clearly see on the map, you can click on your state and just see like, is there a current bill? Is it still active or did it die on the floor or die at some point in the process of trying to become a law? You can see which representatives or which senators are co-sponsoring, are authoring the bills, are promoting the bills. And then you can read the language to see, is it off, is it like just to offer a class to every kid or is it to require that every kid takes the class? Those are different. Having an elective class that students can opt into, that's a great first start. But the reality is if every single kid doesn't get it, then only the lucky few who sign up for that elective are going to be able to get access to all this information. And we know every single kid needs it, regardless of whether they go to college or not. 
they're going to get a paycheck. So they're going to need to know what to do with it. Um, and so it's really important. I think that folks just know that they have a quick, clear place to find out if there's a bill in their state, where it is in the process and who they can contact to kind of figure out how to get involved and looped in into supporting this bill. And it could just be as quick as posting on Facebook or Twitter to just say, hey, did you know, you know, this bill is active in our state? Like, let's get a petition going. Let's write to our local representatives and just let them know that we really care about this issue and we want them to vote yes at the next vote so that we can keep pushing this forth. Well, Yanelli, you're doing uh, good work there, and uh, we wish you all the best uh, luck, and and hopefully, we get some people here uh, involved and in, and in on the on the bandwagon here and and start bugging the senators and Congress and all that. So, uh, yes. thanks so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you. This is so exciting. Um, if anybody is really interested in connecting, feel free to either head on over to NDPF.org. My information is on our website. I'm, I've been part of the full team uh, since 2018. So I'm you know, one of the key members there doing all this work. But also I do post on social media as Must Be Helpful, like you mentioned earlier. And um, and my book is, is out as of mid-2023 called Mind Your Money. And, and the thing about the book too is I tried to talk a lot about this advocacy work, but also by telling my story too, because I think it's really important for people who don't see themselves reflected in like your traditional, typical mainstream financial um, content to know like this and this can apply to your story, even if it's not like something that you feel like it has been a, a natural call to action for you. It can still be something that really moves you and that can transform your life. Um, you know, in my case, I, I really didn't get in, into money at all until way later after multiple degrees. And I and none of my degrees had anything to do with money. But once I figured it out and realized how impactful it was, it you know really became a core part of my career and my life. So I, I wanted to kind of share more personal yeah. stories as well to let people know that there's a connection there. That's great. Yanelli Espinal, thank you very much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. And uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Of course, financial education is sort of a, a battle that we are all trying to win. But you know, the reality is right now, we've got to kind of take it into our own hands. And the other thing to consider is even if they do teach this stuff in schools, what are they going to teach? Okay, that's the other thing. So don't don't hang your hat on it. I think it's it's a great idea, but we really need to continue to self-educate and educate our children on on financial education. Um, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. I want to remind you also that there is another podcast called Sapio with Buck Joffrey, which you may find very interesting. It's a, sort of more of a health longevity uh, type podcast. Check that out. Usual ways, the same way you check this one out. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast, though. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. 
you'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.